glad you're here. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. We'll be reading verses 12 through 14 as we continue our series this morning through the book of 1 John. Blessed assurance. We have the assurance that we know God, that God abides in us and we in Him, that by the blood of Jesus we have the forgiveness of all of our sins, and that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Marvelous promises all contained throughout the book of 1 John. We've been working our way through this book, and we come now to verses 12 through 14 of 1 John. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. Hear now the word of the true and living God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let us pray. Father God, we want to know you. Help us through your word to come to know you better this morning. We praise you, Father, that you have forgiven all of our sins in Christ Jesus. Help us to appreciate that forgiveness at a deeper level today. We have the victory in Christ Jesus, but... Enable us, Father, to see how we might continue to overcome the evil one in our daily life. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Why do we write the things that we write? Why do you write the things that you write? Maybe it's a, a personal letter that you are writing to a family member or a friend. And you just want to share with them what's on your heart, what's on your mind, what's been happening in your life. That letter is going to have a very different feel to it than, say, if you're having to write a, a strongly worded letter to a company because of a particular product that, well, it didn't do what it said it was going to do, or, or that uh, broke too quickly, or, or something along those lines. That letter is going to have a very different feel than that personal letter that you're writing. You see, it's the purpose, it's the intention behind the writing that usually dictates the, the style in which the letter or the work is being written, and that is true for 1 John. Now, when we come to chapter 5, we're going to hit the primary purpose statement of the book, I'm persuaded. I write these things unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. But peppered throughout, you do have these early indicators of, of what John is writing, why he's writing what he's writing. And verses 12, 13, and 14 of 1 John chapter 2 are clearly purpose statements. I am writing to you for thus and such reason. And then John gets very personal. You know, we've already seen that he calls those to whom he's writing beloved in verse 7 of chapter 2. In verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, these are terms of endearment, 
terms that indicate that John has a relationship with these folks, terms that also betray the fact that, well, John is writing to fellow Christians, people who are part of the family of God, people who are like him, children of God in Christ Jesus. And so, this is the elder, John, elder, uh, no doubt a leader in the church, and he's writing to these fellow Christians that he loves. And some of them are apparently uh, growing up in the faith. They've not yet reached maturity. And yet there are some who apparently have attained a, a certain level of maturity. And that seems to be the reason why John will use different terms here in verses 12, 13, and 14 to talk about the group to whom he's writing. Little children there in verse 12 is one of them. That term, by the way, is different than children in verse 13. Different word. And, and there may be there's subtle nuances to each of those terms. Maybe the, the little children are, are just brand new baptized babes in Christ. While the children in verse 13, they've been Christians for, for a little bit of time. Although there's still some immaturity among them. But then he also writes to young men in the middle of verse 13. And also at the end of verse 14. Writing to these young men, these may be Christians, uh, at least a, a phrase to indicate Christians, who have been walking with the Lord for some time, and, and they have spiritual strength to them. They have spiritual vitality and vigor, and, and, and so they are, well, they're getting after it with their Christian walk. Been, been walking with the Lord a bit longer than, say, the, the children in the faith, if you will. But then there are the fathers, verse 13, verse 14. The fathers are those who've apparently been walking with the Lord the longest. And, and because of their relationship, they have a certain spiritual depth and maturity to them. And they're, they're farther along down uh, the, the pathway of sanctification than the young men and, and especially the, the children and the little children as well. I think that's the, the best way to understand and, and interpret what John is, the, the groups to whom he's writing here. And each one may have their own particular struggle. And so John is writing first to these little children, again, perhaps newborn babes in Christ, just freshly born again. And, and maybe they have some difficulty with understanding the, the forgiveness that they have in Christ Jesus. I don't want to leave the impression that those who have been walking with the Lord a bit longer still don't struggle with this. Maybe you do. You still struggle with, man, does God really forgive me of all this, of all my sin? But uh, here, John is especially concerned about the little children, the new babes in Christ. And then he writes to, to fathers, and uh, again, those who have the, the most spiritual maturity among the group, and and so he's writing to them about how they know and, and how they have communion with, well, the one who's from the beginning. And maybe those young men are especially grappling with uh, overcoming the evil one. And so John is saying, I'm, I'm writing to you to, to, to talk about that, how, how you have overcome the evil one. That seems to be, again, the, the overall structure of this that John is writing in these particular verses and, and the purpose statements. And and the whole letter can tie right back to each of these phrases. 
I mean, we've, we've seen in chapter 1 and verse 7 about how the blood of Jesus continually forgives us of all of our sin. Well, that's right here in verse 12. You are forgiven of your sins. Overcoming the evil one. John's going to have a lot to say about the evil one when we get to chapter 3. And also about those false spirits. How you need to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Ah, so that means there are some spirits that are not from God. Yeah, yeah. You need to overcome those. Not be overcome by them. So uh, all of these uh, different phrases, there's connective tissue that runs all throughout this book and, and certainly all throughout the Bible as well. Well, let's dig in here, and, and really what we're saying and what John is communicating here is that all spiritual blessings are in the family of God. That's why I've entitled this uh, sermon, All in the Family, not to be confused with uh, Archie Bunker, right? Uh, I'm not seeking to address any of you as a meathead, okay? But all spiritual blessings are ours in the family of God. And that includes things like the forgiveness of sins and, and the, the power that's necessary to overcome the evil one. We don't have it in ourselves, by the way. And, and knowledge, not knowing God and, and having communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of these spiritual blessings, marvelous spiritual blessings, they all are in the family of God. They belong to us as children, as, as uh, those who've been walking with the Lord for some amount of time. Fathers and mothers in the faith. And the first spiritual blessing that's addressed is the forgiveness of sins. There in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now, the way this is written in the original, the way that John wrote this in the original language, English fails to capture the the full force of the statement there, your sins are forgiven. I've talked before about what's called the perfect tense in the original language. Past completed action with present continuing results. Past completed action, present continuing. And that's the force, that's the tense that John uses here for your sins are forgiven. That is, you came to have your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus for the very first time. And I think we would connect that to baptism. But now you stand completely forgiven. Your sins continue to be forgiven. You stand before God forgiven of all of your sins. And again, John in particular writing to these little children, but maybe just maybe you're struggling with that as well. God, does he really forgive all of them? And and what's communicated here is the blood of Jesus did not stop at the baptistry. Unfortunately, in church history, there are those who have been confused about baptism and And early on in church history, there was an idea that, well, you ought to postpone baptism as long as possible to make sure that, you know, if sin really does, is really forgiven in baptism, then, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want any sins after your baptism. Well, this puts that faulty notion to bed, that the blood of Jesus didn't stop at the baptistry. No, his blood continues to forgive and continues to cleanse so that we stand before God totally, completely forgiven. All of it is forgiven. And it's all our sins are forgiven and continue to be forgiven for His name's sake or through His name. And the name here, whose name is it? Is it God's name? Is it Christ's name? Well, yes. 
I want to emphasize, though, in particular, Jesus' name. That it is through the glorious name of Jesus and for His name's sake that all of our sins are completely, totally, 100% forgiven. We know from Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that there is salvation in no other name. No other name is given to people under heaven among men except for Jesus. That, that's the name that completely saves. Salvation is found in no other name except the name of Jesus. And we see here the connection to salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. That indeed we have been saved because we are forgiven. And it is for His name's sake. That is uh, significant because it points to the whole person of Christ. And it captures His work that He accomplished on the cross by His death, His burial, His resurrection. And it also includes uh, the fact that uh, He made certain promises Uh, His word is connected to this as well. The work of Christ and the word of Christ, those are combined under the banner of his name. And in fact, if your sins, if there was any sin that was still on your record, number one, that would interrupt our fellowship with God, yes, we've already talked about that, but also that would impugn the name of Christ. It would bring dishonor to his name if any of our sin remained on the ledger. That's how serious this is, that When Jesus says forgiven, you are forgiven. All of it is forgiven. In John chapter 17, I've mentioned how the the first epistle of John seems to be a work that is uh, commentary in some ways on his gospel. That to read these in concert is a good practice, and hopefully in your daily Bible reading, I would encourage you to do that, pick up the gospel of John and and read it as we go along in the sermon series every Sunday morning. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And I want you to notice what he communicates here about the name. Verses 11 and 12 of John chapter 17. Jesus prays, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Remember, this is the Son praying to the Father. Holy Father, notice, Keep them in your name, which you have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice, keep them, guard them, protect them in your name. That's the force of what Jesus is praying here. And why uh, the text there in 1 John 2 and verse 12 may be ambiguous, why John intentionally did that. It's for his name's sake. Who, Jesus' sake? His name? Yes. But also for the sake of God's name, because Jesus here is praying about your name. And how they may be kept, they may be guarded. There's protection under the banner of the name of God. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Notice this. You have the protection that comes from being in the name. Kept in the name of God. But then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, and I kept them in your name. Uh, a good way to illustrate this, you know, I, here you are, Christian, my wedding ring, and here you are in the name of God, and you are kept by that name. It's a powerful name. And then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, I'm going to keep you in that name. It's double protection. Who is it? Who is it that's going to take you from the name of the Father and, and the powerful work of the Son? Who can do it? This is why at the end of First John, one of the things that John will say is that the, 
that, that we are kept by the Son, and the devil, the evil one, can't lay a finger on us. He can't touch us. And now you see why. It's a powerful name of God. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas there, okay? Don't get it twisted. He's not, is he praying about me? No, he's praying about Judas, okay? You're kept in the powerful name of God by Jesus Christ. So, again, this has the full endorsement, the full backing of heaven. The Father, the Son, indeed the Holy Spirit as well. Wow, the full forgiveness of our sins. That's, that's the first spiritual blessing that is ours in the family. It's simple, right? It's basic, and yet it's so profound. Every sin you have sinned, every sin that you will sin, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, we've already seen it's not licensed to sin. God forbid. Ollie, ollie, income free, now I can do whatever I want. No, we don't use grace as a license to sin. We don't use the full forgiveness of our sins to engage in more sin. Why would you heap up further, uh, further sin upon Christ? And why would you bring reproach to his name? Well, and that's why John continues here, and he says, uh, verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him. This is, again, another perfect tense thing. Past completed action, present continuing. You came to know him, and you continue to know him. You, at some point in your life, you began your life with God. You were awakened to the realization that you're a sinner in need of salvation. That you have, you've been a rebel, and you've fled from the presence of God. And then you... You came to the realization. You were spiritually awakened. God did His work, and you came to know Him. And now you continue to know Him. And as you've walked with the Lord, what that has done is it has deepened your relationship with Him. You've come to a deeper and deeper knowledge of who He is. And as you came to know Him more and more, that's part of what clues you in on Gee, I really should hate sin with a holy hatred. And that's why, wow, the full forgiveness of sins. I don't want to do anything. I, I want to avoid sin as much as possible. I see what God has done in Christ Jesus to bring me the white robe of the righteousness of Christ. And I don't want to do anything that would soil that. As if we could. That's... You know him, and, and you continue to know him, and, and your knowledge of him continues to deepen. And, and notice how John talks about God. Him who is from the beginning. Now, I, I guess we could say that that certainly could point to Christ, because he's God the Son. But given that he's going to mention the Father specifically at the end of this verse, I'm, I'm inclined to see this is knowledge of the Father. Either one is acceptable, by the way. You come to know Christ, and you continue to know Christ. You came to know the Father, you continue to know the Father. You have come to know the triune God, and you continue to know the triune God. And your relationship with the Trinity continues to deepen the longer you walk with God. It's a, a, a slow, steady obedience in the same direction. Walking in the light. Walking with God. Living with Him. But this knowledge points to is this abiding relationship that you have with God. 
that you have come to know, you continue to know. You, your relationship with the Lord began and it continues and it deepens with time. You've come to know the one who has existed from all creation. Indeed, he's responsible for creation. Indeed, he's responsible for the new creation that is you and your life. And you know him. And you abide in him. And that relationship deepens the longer you are with him. This is all, by the way, language that is indicative of the new covenant. Back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, there's a promise, and this is picked up in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 in particular. This is all language that points to this new covenant that would be founded by God. And the writer of Hebrews says, indeed, he has in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the, the, this new covenant comes and signs of the new covenant. Notice verse 34 in particular. Well, we need 33 as well. Well, let's start in 31. Might as well, yes? Get the whole context here. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Beloved, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Notice, notice the action here. It's not that, that you do this. God does it. And by the way, I unfortunately skipped right over this. Part of the forgiveness, the aspect of forgiveness, you don't forgive yourself. God forgives you. He's the active person. You're passive in receiving the full forgiveness of your sins. Back to Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know Yahweh. Know the Lord. Know Yahweh. For they shall all know me. You see the connection here? I'm writing to you, uh, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. You know him, and it's because he has taught you. We've all been taught by God. We've all been taught by the Father. And so this is the connection here to this promise in Jeremiah. You, you won't need to teach them. They'll all know me under the new covenant. Uh, and then he continues here, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Well, well, that's verse 12 of 1 John 2, right? Again, another sign of the covenant, not just that we know him, but that we have the, the complete forgiveness of our iniquity and our sin, all of it. And God says, I'll remember it no more. And that's what John is communicating in the strongest way possible to say, you have been and you continue to be completely forgiven of all your sin. And it's God who did it. Brothers and sisters, we have the new covenant. And it has been established through the precious blood of Jesus. And we enjoy all of the benefits and blessings that come along with that. I'm writing to you, young men. Here's the third blessing. I'm writing to you as we come back to 1 John 2, verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John just said a mouthful there. The evil one, that would be the devil. 
and all of the spiritual forces of darkness, you've overcome them. Once again, I hate to sound like a broken record, right? But it is a perfect tense. You have over the, there came a point where you became an overcomer, and you continue to overcome the evil one. Yeah, but but there are times, more often than I like to admit, that I give in to temptation and sin. And, and it seems like the devil won a victory there. The fact that you are a conqueror is not because of your performance. It is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what it means to be an overcomer, to be a victor. It means, number one, we are dependent upon the work of Christ. His complete, perfect obedience to His Father in heaven on our behalf. And then His death on the cross for our sins. Not His own sins. He was sinless. We are dependent upon the completed work of Christ for our being labeled as overcomers. But then also, we are overcomers, we are victors because, again, of our knowledge of the Father. Because we are in communion with the Father. Because we know and continue to know and our, our relationship with Him deepens. And we can appreciate those times when, yes, we do give in to temptation and we sin. Ah, I shouldn't have done that. And God, I know it's sinful. And because we know Him and He's a Holy Father, we also come to know that He's a perfect Savior in Christ Jesus. And so we can turn right around and say, on the one hand, Father, forgive me, and then turn around and say, thank you for the forgiveness. And help me to continue to overcome it and put that to rest. And then you have the work of Christ, the Son. You have communion with the Father. Let's put the Trinitarian aspect on this. He's, we also have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Oh, the Word of God abides in you? Yeah, we're going to get that in just a moment. The Word of God, which enables us to do the things that we do, not from our own strength and our own uh, intellect and our own ability, but because of the Spirit's work within us, that we are able to have victory over the evil one. Again, this is another spiritual blessing that belongs to the family of God. It's yours, my brother, yours, my sister, only in Christ Jesus. I hear and I understand that because of the work of the triune God in my life, that I have victory, that I am an overcomer. But, but can we put some, some wheels to this thing? Can we, can we show where the rubber meets the road, as it were? And, and what does it look like to overcome sin? How can I overcome sin in my own personal life? Because I do. I want to be pleasing to God. I want to, to put to rest uh, sin. And, and, and you know there are these certainties that I continue to struggle with. How can I overcome those things? That's a wonderful question. That's a sign of the work of God in your life, my brother, my sister. That you want to, that you want to kill sin in your life. Otherwise, you recognize it'll be killing me. A few things. Number one. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. We know Romans 6, don't we? That's where we want to come when we want to talk about baptism, right? Well, don't stop reading at verse 4. <laughs> 
as you continue reading, verse 5 talks about our, our union with Christ. For since we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6 is what I'm after. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The Apostle Paul is telling us how in the first place there is a habitual weakening of sin in our life. I wish I could tell you that when you came up out of the baptistry that you were going to overcome every temptation and you would never sin again. But that's only going to be true in glory with the Father in heaven. We still grapple against and battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. But these influences can be weakened over time because, number one, Paul points them back to you've been crucified with Christ. Your old self, the old man, the old person, the old Nick, the old Gary, the old Barbara, right? That, that old self was crucified with Christ. And it's for the purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That over time we continue to fight against sin with all the power that the Spirit supplies within us. And that indeed that constant fighting, that constant continuing uh, contending against sin will have a weakening impact upon temptation. That the longer you walk with God and, and, and the more you come to know Him, as you read His Word, as you meditate on His Word, as you talk with Him through prayer, as you engage in other spiritual disciplines, as you, as you plead with Him and, and, and mourn over your own sin, the more you come to know Him, all of this has a weakening impact. And let me tell you, if you are ignoring these spiritual disciplines, don't be surprised when sin crops up in your life. Because God has given these graces, these means whereby we can fight against sin and we can over time habitually weaken that sin so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And indeed, we transfer from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. He's going to continue as you get deeper into uh, this. What does it mean to fight against sin? It means, number one, you're going to know your enemy. You're going to know that there is uh, th the world. You're going to know, uh, and, and well, we're going to, see this when we come next week to verse 15 that there is this thing called the world and it's it's not the the created order so much as it's this uh this system that's in place that is currently being manipulated by the evil one the whole world lies in the power of the evil one john says at the end of first john and so we recognize number one there's the world we recognize there's the flesh and, and we're not going to be free from the flesh until our resurrection body and the flesh has desires that are competing against the desires of the Spirit. And they go heads up and they're opposed to one another. We recognize and we know that. We recognize our own heart, that it is uh, deceitful above all things. Who can understand it, Jeremiah 17 tells us. That, that it, it wants, well, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? And, and it wants those things of the flesh. We need to be aware that our heart is, is inclined to these things because of the flesh. We need to be aware also of the devil, that there are powerful, malevolent spiritual beings. They're very real, and, and we are at war against 
these rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers of the air, these spiritual forces of darkness. We know the enemy, and we know their stratagem, that they are, they are wily in their wickedness and in their ways, that they are uh, multifaceted in the means in which they will uh, attempt to uh, persuade us, and that those, everything that the evil spiritual forces of darkness are about are lethal. They're, they're intent on killing us. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, Jesus told us. He came that we might have abundant spiritual life, abundant eternal life. And we are not ignorant of the strategies and the wiles of the evil one. We've got a whole book devoted to how he came against Abram, how he came against Moses, how he came against David. And sometimes, sometimes he comes with a kiss like Judas. And we need to be aware of that. And when we are victorious in those moments, when we, through the spiritual disciplines and and, and through the various means that God has provided, when we recognize the way of escape, those are times that you need to celebrate the success. Those are times when you erupt in thanksgiving to God. Because, again, not because you're so big, bad, and wise, and all this stuff, but because God has supplied the way of escape. And, and it's not just enough to sweep the house clean, by the way. You also need to be implanting new desires, new affections. And, and part of this is, again, the work of the Spirit. Uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, let's just use an example right here from 1 John. And we'll dig into this text more next week, but verse 15. Do not love the world. There is such a thing as loving the world. That there is such a thing as love for the world. And we are told here it's an imperative. Don't do it. Don't love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is such a thing as love of the Father. These two loves are in opposition to one another. They are opposed to one another. And if you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. And so, again, you overcome, you know the enemy, you, you recognize the, the various strategies that the world's going to put into place in order to try and tempt you to get you away from God. But as you overcome and you recognize what that is for what it is, and it's sin, and you put that to rest, and it's weakened over time, and you celebrate those successes, now you need to implant and cultivate love of the Father. And that that affection, that desire over time becomes stronger than the love of the world. And indeed, there's nothing in the world that I want. I want the love of the Father. These are ways in which we can overcome sin in our daily lives. Some of these are repetitive, and, and you saw that, no doubt, as we read through them. Verse 14 begins, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. We've already dealt with that at the beginning of verse 13. Why does he say it twice? For emphasis, I think. That, that seems uh, appropriate to me. He's, he's emphasizing this for these spiritually mature ones. You know him. And you know that you know. How do you know him? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Go back to 2 verse 3. 
By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Obedience. You want to know God? Obey him. Obey him more and more. It's, it's not something spectacular or, or fantastic or, or abnormal that God requires. Simple, humble obedience to him in all things. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Here's yet another blessing that is ours. The word of God abiding in us. There's, uh, of course, we are aware that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this could be talking about Christ, who is the word dwelling. He, he abides in us. I'm inclined also to see we, we know this is the word of God. Scripture is the word of God. He's given it to us for our instruction. And we need that word abiding in us. It's the implanted word that is able to make us wise for salvation, wise to the ways of the evil one, wise into how God would have us to walk and live and move and have our being in his world. And so uh, the word of God, it abides. It's a present tense thing as well. It, it continues to abide uh, and, and it remains in us. And John will have more about the, uh, the seed of God. And I believe that's connected to the word of God as well and how that abides in us. God has revealed himself in time and space, in the incarnation, but also through Scripture. And it is this revelation of God that needs to uh, uh, live in our hearts and our minds, that we need to possess in ourselves. And uh, the last phrase there for the young men, you have overcome the evil one. We've uh, spent some time on that already this morning. Mentioned again, twice for emphasis, I'm persuaded. To emphasize, you have overcome, you continue to overcome. And, and yes, uh, put to work the means that God has given you, but ultimately recognize that your victory is in Jesus and in Him alone. Again, these are the reasons why John wrote what he wrote. Uh, there's other very interesting things. I am writing he uses that phrase three times, verse 12 and 13. I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you. But then it turns in uh, verse the end of verse 13. I wrote to you is literally what it says there. I wrote, I wrote, I wrote. Is there any significance in that? Perhaps I'm writing to you this epistle. I wrote to you the gospel. That could be what's in view here. John, again, he's already written his gospel to these folks. And First John is in strong connection with that. And so he's showing, look, I, I wrote what I wrote to you uh, in the gospel to show you how Christ has overcome the evil one on our behalf through his death on the cross. And now I'm writing to you, but you recognize that you are an overcomer and you are uh, victorious. And so that, that could factor in here as well. But again, this is, now we see why, at least some of the purposes, why John is writing to his original audience. And these things, they were true then, they're true for us today. As we read what he wrote, we receive what they got as well. And that is the, the full, complete forgiveness of our sins for his name's sake. It is knowledge and communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is the, the power and, and the victory of overcoming through Christ. 
and, and also through the means that God has provided for us, that we can do this even on an everyday basis. And the word of God abides in us. It continues to abide in each one of us, brothers and sisters. My exhortation to us is to continue to cultivate the spirit of victory within us, to seek to overcome sin on a personal basis, recognizing that in Christ we are more than victors, and also to enjoy the sweetness of the complete release that we have of all of our sin through the work of Christ. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we thank you just thank you, Father, for for being who you are, for doing and accomplishing what you have done in Christ Jesus on our behalf. We pray, Father, that we would continue to walk with confidence in knowing you, in knowing Christ, in knowing the work of the Spirit on our behalf within us. I'm grateful for each one of my brothers and sisters here, for those watching online as well. And I pray, Father, that as we have seen this morning, you would write these things on our hearts, and that we would come to know you deeper, day by day. Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.